Well, it's been a month since we last visited the, we- the book of Genesis in our weekend worship services. Significant events in the life of our church caused us to set aside our study of the book of beginnings. But today we return to our series, picking up once again the story of the life of Abraham in Genesis chapter 23. Now recall that when we last spoke of Abraham, he had just passed the ultimate test of faith with his willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. You remember the story. An angel of the Lord stopped the hand of Abraham at, at the last moment, and Abraham was spared the agony of watching his beloved son die before his very eyes. Of course, when God's own son Jesus was centuries later taken to a mountaintop, some believe the same mountaintop to be sacrificed for your sin and mine. No divine hand stopped the proceedings. God himself was willing to do what he never required of Abraham, to watch his beloved son die for the sake of the world that he loved. Well, we read that story of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah in Genesis chapter 22. Truly one of the great chapters of the Bible. But today we turn the page to Genesis 23 to a passage that never makes those lists of the Bible's great chapters. In fact, it's, it's not uncommon for biblical commentators to skip right over chapter 23. For in between the announcement of Sarah's death and her burial, it merely records an unedited account of Abraham bartering with one of his pagan neighbors, a man named Ephron, over the burial, over the price of a burial plot for his beloved wife, Sarah. Someone on our staff commented how appropriate that this passage was given to Brother Budget, the irreverent nickname that some on our team used to refer to me. Well, on the surface, Genesis 23 is indeed the record of a business transaction. About as exciting as reading the fine print on your lease agreement or your mortgage agreement. Why would God use a virtually an entire chapter of this great book, the Bible, to offer us a blow-by-blow account of Abraham negotiating to buy a gravesite? So Genesis chapter 23 often gets overlooked. But to do so today in our study, I believe would be a a grave mistake. And yes, the bad pun was fully intended. For this chapter has so much to teach us in our own day about navigating life with God well in the shadow of the hereafter. As our text today, I'll read the first six verses of Genesis chapter 23 and then skip down To pick up the story again in verses 17 and 18, would you please read along in your Bibles with me? Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. 
The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. Then skip over the bartering and pick up the story in verse 17. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout the whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites. The title of today's message is Finishing Well in a Fallen World. Would you join your hearts with mine in prayer? Heavenly Father, today we pray that you would give us ears to hear what you would say to us today. We pray that you would give us minds to learn from your word. Lord, most importantly, we pray that for hearts that would be obedient to whatever you would speak to our hearts today. We ask that you would change us as a result of your word at work in us by the power of your spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And as we give our attention to the study of God's word today, may the Lord be with you. Well, few things help remind us that we live in a fallen world more clearly than the death of a loved one. These same events, however, also help focus our attention more clearly on the important and lasting things of life. I've experienced this reality once again in recent months as my family said goodbye to my mother, Betty Workman, who passed into eternity on July 30th at age 92. Mom's final months were lived amidst the hardships of COVID-related restrictions. As her health failed, she struggled to understand why she was seemingly abandoned in hospitals and rehab facilities with no one coming to visit her. Finally, we were able to arrange to care for mom at her home where my siblings and I were able to be at her bedside 24-7 during her last few days of life on this side of eternity. On one of those nights when mom was no longer responsive but seemed to be resting comfortably, I just sat and read passages of scriptures to her from my late father's Bible. Then I found a site on YouTube, self-described as the 50 greatest hymns. There I sat next to mom's bed, softly singing along to so many of the wonderful hymns that I first learned in the little church where she and dad faithfully took our entire family every week. I don't think I fully appreciated until that night how many of those old hymns, especially in the last verse that that we sometimes skipped over in that little church, how many of those hymns fix our gaze in this world on the promise of living forever with our Savior in the next. Well, in our text today, we encounter the death of Sarah. And what would seem to be the beginning of the end of Abraham's story. Recall that over 60 years earlier, God had called Abraham to leave his home in Haran and with his wife Sarah travel over 3,000 miles to the land God would show him, to Canaan. 
There Abraham and Sarah lived as nomadic sheep herders for over 60 years, traveling from place to place throughout the land of Canaan, caring for the needs of their ever-growing flocks. And as our story begins, we learn that Abraham had pitched his tents in the land of Canaan near a town that would later become known as Hebron. It was there that his beloved wife, Sarah, died. The man who would later write down this book of Genesis, Moses, informed us that Sarah was 127 years old when she died. Now, I'm thinking that Moses may have lived to regret adding that little detail to Sarah's life story. After all, how many women over the age of 29 like others to know how old they are? So my, my theory is that Moses got an earful from his own wife on that one because nowhere else in Scripture is a woman's age recorded at the time of her death. So Sarah died at age 127. And if she had married Abraham at the customary age for women in that time and culture, which was age 15, it meant that Abraham was now facing life without his partner of 112 years. So it should not surprise us to learn that Abraham went in to mourn and to weep over Sarah. Brothers and sisters, such tears are the language of a hurting heart and a sorrowful soul. Never feel the need to apologize for these tears. But as the people of God, our tears on the journey of grief have an incredible traveling companion. For we do not grieve as those who have no hope wrote the Apostle Paul in his first letter to the Thessalonians. And so, strengthened by his hope in God, Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the unbelieving residents of Hebron to obtain a burial plot for Sarah. And his interaction with these neighbors nearly 4,000 years ago still has much to teach us today about finishing well in a fallen world. Let's look at the story together more closely, shall we? When we do, the first thing we'll discover is something important about Abraham's sense of belonging in the world of the Canaanites. I am a sojourner and foreigner among you, he explained to his Canaanite neighbors. Now, remember, Abraham had originally traveled to Canaan with his nephew Lot. And after the two had parted ways, we, we saw that Lot had put down roots among the wicked inhabitants of the Canaanite city of Sodom. And he had made his home there um, among those people, even take his, taken his place among the leadership of that city before God dramatically rescued him from the judgment that fell on that place. Abraham, however, had walked a different path through life in the land of Canaan. For over 60 years, he and Sarah had lived as nomads, wandering through the land, engaging the people and the issues of life in that ungodly culture without ever being assimilated into that life. It could easily be said of Abraham that he was in the world of the Canaanites, but not of it. 
Unlike his nephew Lot, Abraham was a sojourner and foreigner in the broken and sin-scarred world of ancient Canaan. Now, a sojourner is just a temporary resident. Someone who isn't planning to hang in the hood for long. A foreigner is a person who doesn't naturally belong in the place where he finds himself. As the father of faith in the one true God, Abraham recognized that although God had called him to this place, he would never truly be at home in Canaan. If we are to finish well in a fallen world, brothers and sisters, we too must adopt the mindset of sojourners and foreigners in the worldly culture in which we find ourselves. We can never allow ourselves to be conformed to this world. That is shaped by its molds, Romans 12. And as Pastor Allen reminded us last week, we can never allow the bonds of citizenship in this place to hold sway over our heart's allegiance as a citizen of heaven. For it's from heaven that we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 3. The Apostle Peter urged followers of Jesus to abstain from the passions of the flesh as sojourners and exiles. Abraham models for us this truth. If we are to finish well in a fallen world, we must see ourselves as sojourners and foreigners here. Our forever home is not in this world. When it comes to the matter of friendship with the world, Abraham was a sojourner. Lot was a homemaker. He made his home in Canaan. Scripture points us to the former as our example. How can you tell when the attitude of your heart has crossed the line between being a sojourner versus a homemaker? Let me suggest three telltale signs. I'm asking you to take these before the Lord. The first is this. Consider how you invest your time. Are you building God's kingdom or your own with the way you use your time? Second, consider how you spend your money. Actually, it would probably be more correct to say, consider how you spend his money. Because it all belongs to God in the first place. You're just a steward, a caretaker of his money. If someone were caring for your money the way you care for God's money, would you say to them, well done, good and faithful servant? Finally, third, consider the things that most stir your passions. What is it that makes your heart leap? What is it that makes your blood boil? What are the things that move your needle, as my good friend Dr. Stanko likes to say? Do, the, do your deepest passions align with those of your Savior? Or do you tend to spend your passion on things of little consequence? Pastor Rock liked to remind us that we'll know our deepest passions by the things we are willing to divide over. If you don't agree with me on this, then I'm done with you. God help us if our passions for the things of this world cause us to look at our brothers and sisters in the faith and, and say, I'm done with you. So Abraham approached the Hittites. 
saying, I'm a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place. And I love the response of Abraham's neighbors. Listen in verse 6. Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. Would you like to finish well in a fallen world? Then live in, in such a way among your unbelieving neighbors that they will see you as a prince or a princess of God. In fact, that's what we are as children of the king and joint heirs with Jesus. We are princes and princesses of God. But would your friends and neighbors describe you that way? Now, before any protests, know that I realize that there is another side to this coin. Jesus was hung on a cross by unbelievers in his own day. And among the truths Jesus taught his disciples was this warning. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. John chapter 15. The cross of Christ will always be a stumbling block to those who are perishing. And the exclusivity of Jesus' claim in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That will always provoke opposition. But in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus called us to be peacemakers. He said that we should let our light shine before others so that they will see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. So here's the question, will the world hate us or will they see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven? I think the answer is yes. We'll see both reactions. But I believe the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans helps us to reconcile these two conflicted thoughts with this instruction. He said, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Romans chapter 12. You and I can't determine the response of unbelievers around us. But so far as it depends on us. We should live peaceably among all and let the light of Christ shine in us for his glory. Abraham had apparently done this, leading to the observation of the Hittites. You are a prince of God among us. Would that we as Christians live in such a manner in the midst of this current pandemic. I think sometimes we forget the comfort we have in knowing a blessed eternity awaits us beyond the grave. Try to imagine, if you can, brothers and sisters, the fear of facing a a potentially deadly unseen disease without such a comfort. Perhaps then we would be less dismissive of our neighbor's concerns. Would that we as Christians would live in such a manner in the midst of this current election. Goodness, for a start, we could stop posting or reposting all the snarky comments on Facebook. With our speech, including our social media posts, we should be peacemakers, not partisan dividers. Rather than spending so much time online signaling our own political virtues, let's choose instead to let the world see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven.
I've told you before that as a young believer in college, I remember a Christian group that would periodically march through the streets of our campus. They carried large banners that that read, Turn or Burn. And they used bullhorns to shout over the students who stopped to challenge them. The verbal back and forth made the last presidential debate seem polite by comparison. Suffice it to say, none of the bystanders who saw those believers walked away saying, Ah, there are the princes and princesses of God. Jesus didn't tell us to solicit a fallen world's hatred. Abraham had learned to do the opposite and was seen, was seen even by his pagan neighbors as a prince of God. Today, we can learn from his witness. So Abraham lived as a stranger and sojourner in a fallen world. He lived among his neighbors as a prince of God. Finally, Abraham is an example for us of finishing well in a fallen world because he tenaciously held fast to the promises of God, even the promises that fell into the category of not yet. What do I mean by that? Well, Scripture assures us that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.20. The answer isn't up for debate. The timing of yes, however, is sometimes another matter. In Abraham's case, God had last confirmed his promise to give all the land of, of Canaan to Abraham and his descendants nearly 40 years earlier. And now Abraham was old, Sarah was gone, and what part of Canaan did they own? Nothing. Zip, zero, nada. As wealthy as he may have been in sheep and livestock, Abraham had no place, not so much as a cemetery plot, to bury his dead. Now, the custom of that time was to lay loved ones to rest with their ancestors, where the deceased could be gathered to their fathers, as the expression went. Abraham and Sarah's ancestral home was back in the land of Haran, quite a distance from Canaan. But Abraham looked beyond the cultural tradition of his day and sought a burial place for his beloved Sarah among the Hittites, in the land of Canaan. And, and he wasn't content just to buy a place to bury or, or just to merely bury Sarah in Canaan. He insisted on buying and owning her gravesite, in effect, establishing Canaan as the new ancestral home for Abraham and his descendants from that day forward. The cave of Machpelah and the field that surrounds it thereby became the only piece of land Abraham would ever own in Canaan. God had promised the whole land to Abraham and his descendants, but the only part of the promise Abraham saw fulfilled in his lifetime was a single cave in an isolated field at Machpelah, a site you can still visit today. As noted earlier, Sarah's death seemingly marked the beginning of the end of Abraham's story. But in the grander story of God, it was just the end of the beginning. For the promise of the land was a promise not fulfilled for Abraham in the now, 
but rather in the not yet. Hundreds of years later, Abraham's descendants under the leadership of Joshua would see its fulfillment as they laid claim to Canaan. In the intervening period, Abraham's remains were buried with those of Sarah in the cave at Machpelah. Isaac, his son, and Rebekah, Isaac's wife, were laid to rest there. Jacob buried his wife Leah in that cave, and he made his son's promise to carry his bones back to Machpelah from the place where he would die in Egypt. God had promised to Abraham, to you and to your descendants, I will give this land. But all of that was in the future. Abraham himself saw none of it. Rather than doubt, however, assuming that God had somehow forgotten his promise, Abraham doubled down on his faith in the God of the promise. He held fast, in effect, putting a stake in the ground by buying a cave in Canaan. That cave at Machpelah was Abraham's statement of faith in God, the promise keeper. And the cave became his testimony for generations to come down to this very day that Abraham's family would forever be anchored in the land of Canaan, the land God had promised. And so my question for you is this. Is there a cave in Canaan you need to buy today? Is there a promise of God to which you need to hold fast a not yet promise where the answer is still unseen. And so today, by faith, you need to double down and reaffirm your faith in God, the promise keeper. Maybe it's his promise of provision that hasn't yet arrived, and today you need to buy a cave. Or maybe it's his promise of peace that still eludes your grasp. Doubts have crept in, and you need to buy a cave. Maybe you've recently received word that that your life itself is hanging by a thread and you need to know that there is still healing in his wings, perhaps in this life, most certainly in the next. Brother or sister in the Lord, your real estate agent is on the phone. What better time to buy a cave in Canaan? Today you need to put a stake in the ground to say, no matter what I see now, I will still hold fast to God and his promises. This is my testimony for all to see. My God is a promise keeper. Brothers and sisters, the promises of God are always yes in Jesus. Sometimes we have the blessing of seeing the answer now. But when the answer is not yet, will we still trust him? Finishing well in a fallen world, church. Abraham's example teaches us to sojourn as pilgrims in the world, knowing heaven is our home. His witness witness challenges us to live peaceably among our neighbors as princes and princesses of God. And his actions encourage us to take God at his word. Even when we don't see the answer now, hold fast. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, the scriptures say. May we all do likewise. Would you join with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we pray that 
the seed of your word would find fertile soil in our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us to live as sojourners and foreigners in the worldly culture of our day. We, we, we pray that you would teach us to live as peacemakers. Lord, as one says, show your glory by, by the works that we do that our neighbors would call us princes and princesses of God. And God, we pray that you would teach us to hold fast to your promises, knowing that you are indeed the promise keeper. Lord, that you'd help us to put down a stake and say, I believe in God. I believe in the God of the promise, and I believe he will keep his promise. Lord, would you help us to do these things from this day forward, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, church, as we prepare to conclude our service, um, let me just mention to you that uh, October is typically our missions month here at ACAC, and and we uh, collect a, a special offering on the weeks of that month to um, to give a Christmas gift to all of the missionaries serving from this congregation in places all over the world. And uh, so I just want to encourage you, although we don't have a, the October set aside as Missions Month, we still want to bless our missionaries this Christmas with this offering. Would you consider making a, a special gift and simply mark it Christmas Missionary Offering, and we'll see that it becomes part of that gift that we send to our missionaries during this holiday season. And now, church, would you join me for the benediction? Oh, brothers and sisters in Christ, in this week ahead, may the peace of God be upon you. And may the love of God flow through you. And may the grace of God go before you. God bless you this week in all that God has for you. Have a great week serving the King. God bless you, church.